in this book, when I when you look at that behavioral science layer, there's so many things that I fucked up as a leader. Like I just the way I measured, the way that I I tried to motivate. There's so many pieces that I've now discovered that 98% of sales leaders are getting wrong. And it was things that I did wrong too, that just like a new way to think about things. That's like this forecasting piece. That one's like my favorite new revelation is that idea that they used to get it right before they had all this tech. And now not one sales leader feels good about their forecast. And I know exactly why. So on that note, welcome Todd Capone, author of his latest book, The Transparent Sales Leader. Many of you will know him for his sales historian podcast. It's genuinely an absolute goldmine of fantastic material. And what's depressing is the stuff that's being written back in the 1920s could easily be written about today. So Todd, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. I uh, always enjoy these conversations and can't wait to dig in. Excellent. Okay, so Todd, remind people a little bit about your background, please. Yeah, I don't know how this happened. I mean, I was a like a B, B-plus sales rep, but a nerd for methodology, philosophy, and how humans learn, and leveraged that to uh, finally move into sales leadership roles. Had a revelation a couple of years ago about transparency and how human beings engage, prioritize, decide, and buy. Like a lunatic, quit my job, wrote the first book, The Transparency Sale. I honestly thought it had a 50-50 shot that it would suck because I didn't know how to write, but it took on a life of its own. And now I teach, I speak, I do workshops for all sorts of revenue organizations and using behavioral science in sales for good, not evil, and sales leadership. Okay, so tell me, what inspired the Transparent Sales Leader? Well, yeah, I mean, that one started from years ago when I was first promoted into sales leadership, right? It was something that I always wanted to do, but I'd never been trained, right? That's probably familiar. <laughs> but the, the, the core piece of this is I always had a structure or process, and that's how my brain thrives. But as a sales leader, I woke up like day two feeling like a dog chasing a car down the street. <laughs> that every every day was guided by whatever direction I had to go to get at that bumper. And it was like- Ma- you know, Managed by firefighting. Yeah, it was It was not even just firefighting. It was like, all right, today, oh, I got to recruit. Hey, let, let me go do some interviews, right? Like, oh, I got a board meeting today. You know, I'm going to work on that, right? There, so there proper was no, wandering generality. Exactly, exactly. And certainly there was fires, but my brain did not thrive in that. And I- there, there's constantly holes popping up that I didn't see until they were upon me. So I, being a nerd, created a framework for myself. There, there's five core functions of a sales leader. I'm going to chart those out. I'm going to optimize each one. And I'm going to use them as a daily checklist almost for my planning, strategizing, my communicating up, down, side to side, how I you know, communicate with my reps, my frontline managers, my board, my CEO. And then when the bullets start flying, I always had that to fall back on. And over the years, I added in all the behavioral science to optimize each one. And finally, it triggered me. I was like, you know what? We've got a whole sales leadership community that's got no structure, that's got no framework. It's not their fault. It's not anybody's fault. But just having a structure or framework that's optimized by behavioral science 
that would put you ahead of 99% of other people. And imagine your next sales leadership interview where you're the one person that walks in and says, this is how I think about sales leadership. Here's my structure. Here's my process. You can be an idiot and you'll blow minds. You will run past 99% of other people. But that's the inspiration is I, I went to, proactive. I went to watch Elvis yesterday and I just had a, a moment of Colonel Tom Parker doing his snowman effect. So I, I don't know if you, have you seen it? No, no. If you're going for the music, I think you'll be disappointed. But if you're going for a genuine human interest story, it is a really heartrending expose of just how used Elvis was and how trusting he was. It was an insight into human behavior at its worst. So I think you'll leave slightly uh, down, if I'm being perfectly honest. But it was, <laughs> okay. I, I enjoyed I'll look forward to my that. Wife <laughs> I had a good uh, few foot taps as well. Yeah. So tell me about these five Fs then. So there are some Fs in sales then after all. Well, um, yeah. So Simon Leslie, you're wrong. There are five. Tell me about these five Fs of uh, building revenue capacity. Yeah, it was funny. Like I would go into a board meeting and they'd be like, all right, Todd, what's the sales update? And I was like, guess. And they're like, oh, is it the F and five Fs again? I'm like, yeah. Right? But they always knew that I was prepared and I had them. And so just to quickly run through them for everybody. Every responsibility you have as a sales leader falls into one of five categories. And in, in part of it, the order matters. Number one is focus. That you, when you think about your team and you think about when they wake up in the morning and they're getting to use the most valuable asset they have, their time, your responsibility as a leader is to establish and maintain and grow their focus. The right accounts, the right places, the right firmographics, the right demographics, like the right individuals, the right prerequisites. Like you've got a responsibility to make sure that your team is not embarking on science projects every day, right? So that's number one. Once you've done that, your second initial ongoing responsibility is to build the field organization, right? So the team, the individuals, the right people in the right places with the right experiences, right geos, with the right tools and the right resources, right? Like that's your responsibility is to that field organization, the team, the tools, the resources. Your third responsibility, initially and ongoing, is to the fundamentals. You got to make sure that your team is getting the right things right consistently. Messaging, positioning, presenting, demoing, discovery, negotiating, all that stuff. Like that's your responsibility to make sure. Fourth, no shock, you have a responsibility to the forecast, to predict the future, right? Not only to forecast, but the metrics, the KPIs, to measures, all of those things. You've got a responsibility to do that and to know them. And then number five, arguably the cheesiest, but maybe the most important, is fun. Meaning your responsibility is to the culture and to building an environment where your team is intrinsically inspired. Like one of the things I say a lot is, yeah, your team is coin-operated if you're doing it wrong. That it's your responsibility to create an environment where your team wants to show up every day, do their best, stay and advocate to you and your organization. And that variable comp becomes the reward for doing work they love to do instead of the reason they do it. And so those five things, once internalized, right? Focus, field, fundamentals, forecast, and fun, you can use that to plan your day, to plan your 30, 60, 90 day plan at all times. You'll always have that in your brain. Like I'm sure it, as soon as you get done listening to this podcast, write down the five Fs and go, here's where we are. 
here's what we need to fix. Here's the plan to fix it. You've got a 30, 60, 90 day plan in an hour, right? And like tons of stories of how I've used this with one-on-ones, with up, down, side to side, all hands meetings. There was one time where I was in a, a brutal ass kicking by our investors after we missed a quarter. And as the bullet started flying, I had these five Fs and these guys were like, wow, this guy's world-class. Like, I don't think I was world-class, but just having a structure made me sound so much smarter than everybody else. So <laughs> that, that's, that's where it starts. Yeah, well, obviously your inspiration there was J.P. Barnum. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, one born every minute. And what was the other one? Uh, his other famous quote, maybe it was Shakespeare from his money assumed parted, who knows. Okay, tell me this then. If we look at the uh, way you got came about creating that structure, what were the inspirational moments that made you realize that and distill it down to those five? Well, I mean, there's so many that you could go through, but I found really, really quickly, and I don't, they weren't called Fs initially, but I'm an idiot. Like I needed them. I needed some kind of alliteration or some simple, right? And so that field one, some people are like, that's a bit of a force fit. All right, cool. Live with it, right? That you've got a responsibility that what team is taking the field and what tools and resources do they have? And that's, that's the way that I thought about that. But I'll tell you, like, you know, one example of one of those moments that really stood out for me is going into a sales leadership interview mm-hmm. and sitting across the table from somebody who is like, Hey, how do you think about sales leadership? Like, you know, what's your approach? What's your methodology? And I'm like, I'm glad you asked. I have a structure by which I think about this, right? So that I can see the holes before they form and I can stop chasing and really focus on optimizing. And it's my five Fs. And I know it's cheesy, but it's the way that I think about this. And I I went through it. I got the job like an hour later, right? In one case, I was interviewing for my CRO role when I was at Power Reviews. I was the 13th candidate that the CEO interviewed. He was super anal, like off the charts, hated everybody. I came in with the five Fs. I got the offer later that day. Now, again, it doesn't mean I'm any better, any smarter, any of that stuff. But I'm telling you, if you don't have a structure, you're chasing. And anybody with one is immediately better than anybody who's not. And that's that's the point of this thing. Absolutely. I mean, whoever has the better system wins. Back in the, our Sandler days, you know, we used to talk about the buyer having a system and the seller having a system. And if the buyer's system was stronger than yours or you bought their story, you walked out without the order and without any further advancement. So you just wasted all that effort that got you to that point. And that could be literally hundreds of dial attempts, hundreds of emails being sent into someone's spam box, hundreds of attempts to produce content, all for nothing. It's pitiful, the waste. (laughs) And so... Let's come back to this topic because you you did kind of bait the hook saying you understand why forecasting is shot to pieces. I can guess where you're headed, but I was taught no mind reading. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I gave that up for Lent. Over to you. Talk to me about forecasting. Yeah, if if you didn't catch that, it's funny. So you had set up this idea that I'm a nerd for the history of sales, right? Like when cool people are doing cool stuff on the weekends, I'm reading books from the late 1800s, early 1900s on sales. (laughs) Now, the challenges, the problems, the objections, the processes, all of that stuff, 
is exactly the same as it is today. Like I'm telling you, I could pull paragraphs from books from the 1910s, drop them in the LinkedIn, and people would be like, wow, that's brilliant, not having any idea that it's 100 plus years old. But there's one thing that I was starkly missing. And it's this challenge that sales leaders had with forecasting, right? Like today, it's the bane of every sales leader's ex existence is I, I can't predict like my forecast, I'm way off so much. Back then, it wasn't a problem. And they didn't have Slack, they didn't have CRM, right? They didn't even see some of their reps for weeks because they're mm -hmm. all remote and they're only communicating via wire. And so I put my finger on one of the things that I believe has to be a huge contributor to why. And here it is. And it, it actually starts with uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, that the movie from 1992, when Blake, Alec Baldwin gets up and gives that speech that like I watched it a couple of weeks ago and then went and cried myself to sleep, right? It's like, it's, <laughs> it's brutal. But there was one thing he got right. And it was AIDA. All right. So AIDA, what Blake said was attention, interest, decision, action. He got decision wrong. Attention, interest, desire, action. Those four things were first theorized in 1898 by a guy named Elias St. Elmo Lewis as the stages that every buyer goes through on their journey to make a purchase. So AIDA. Now that became the basis of every sales process and every sales forecasting methodology from 1898 through at least the 1940s. Every book, right? Norris Briscoe's got a book in the 1910s, AIDA. Norval Hawkins, I can literally rattle off 10 authors from the 1910s and 1920s that talk through AIDA to the point where a guy named Elmer Ellsworth Ferris in 1924 wrote a book called Salesmanship where he doesn't even bother. He's got the AIDA chart in there and he just says, quote, all writers on salesmanship concede that in every sale, the mind of the customer will pass through four different stages, right? So like, I'm not even gonna talk about it because it's, it's obvious. Every writer, AIDA. Now we fast forward to 1950s, 1960s, where we started to get seller centric in our forecasting, in our qualification, you know, the, the bants and all of that stuff of the world started to really look inward in what sellers are doing. You buy Salesforce today, you buy HubSpot today. What are the Salesforce stages? All seller milestones, discovery, qualification, demo, proposal, negotiate. We somehow got away from going, hey, I need to predict when the buyer's going to buy. Back then, it was all based on recognizing buyer behavior. And every endorphin rush that a sales rep got was from taking another step in what the buyer is doing. Today, systemically, every single process, every single system, every single CRM is creating endorphin rushes for reps based on what the seller is doing. We are not fully teaching reps to recognize buyer behavior. And then we wonder, I can't predict when the buyer is going to buy. But that's why, right? Okay. So we're facing something that I don't think we have seen before, um, because at least in the 1920s, they did have ADA and they had managers who knew how to manage. They had salespeople who did get in front of lots of people and get rejected by them, as opposed to just being blocked by an electronic gatekeeper in the form of voicemail and so on. So 
they learned their craft and they had to learn to speak to lots and lots of people. We also have at least two generations of manager who, who have never had to make a profit. That's a good point, yes. And everything that made them a superhero in the revenue at any cost model eats into profit, like pulling deals forward, discounting, pressuring customers before they're ready and causing them to back off, inundating them with information at the wrong stage, the wrong type of information, boring information being irrelevant. Going from one fantastic piece of content to a stream of tedious morphine shit, then disappointing. So what do we have to do? Let's go back to our forebears. What is it that they did that prepared them for what's to come? Let's take a step back to, like, I think today there is actually a pretty simple solution. I did it at Power Reviews as a CRO there, where we took our stages and we just overlaid buyer behavior over them, right? So there's, I mean, basically buyers go through three stages, right? Why change? Why you? Why now? And I would all argue the order on that with anybody all day long, that they, they still go through this, this process where they look at their status quo and go, this isn't sustainable. Like I got to change something. They then decide, all right, what is going to be the right path to do that? And then they decide whether they're going to sign now or they're going to wait, right? Like if you look at just human behavior in the B2C world, 60% of products that are put in a shopping cart on a website are abandoned. Means that why now is usually the struggle at the end, not at the beginning. And so that's why I argue the, uh, the, the order of that. Well, so that, if- that is important because if you look at Bob Mester's model at the decision-making stage, what they're doing is making trade-offs. Because I do this at the end. You know, I'll put stuff in the basket and then I'll make a comparison later and then I'll dump stuff. And that's quite normal. You're looking at houses. You're deciding, do you need four or five bedrooms? Do you need a second bathroom? Do you need decent access to schools, the utilities, all that kind of stuff? And you're making trade-offs. And if you don't understand that is the decision point and they need to keep more of your stuff than other people's. Yeah. Otherwise, you're traded off. Well, yeah, it's a te- it, again, attention, interest, desire, action. Action yeah. is the last piece, right? Like that's, we, we take action or we don't. And so like that's, that's my argument there. So to start with, you can overlay buyer behavior over your stages tomorrow and change the whole tone of the conversations you have with your reps, create those endorphin rushes for them based on recognizing buyer behavior instead of seller activities. And it'll change your forecast immediately. Like, I, I promise you, it's, it's not that hard. I got a whole chapter on it. <laughs> Are you seeing the same thing playing out in enterprise and complex sales where there are multiple stakeholders? Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, at Power Reviews, we were selling quick 1,000K a month deals all the way to your you know, uh, low seven-figure type deals. And we used that process for all of it. And my forecast, my 90-day forecast, was within three and a half percent, six quarters in a row. One quarter, it was within $12,000. And that was like, that was lucky. I'm not crazy. I'm not freaking clairvoyant. But just having the, like, there's, there's multiple things that you can do. One of them is create environments where you're recognizing buyer behavior with your forecast. Number two thing that we did is we eliminated the word commit. Uh, like commit is a dirty word. Uh, I, I think it's filthy. Like commit is a petri dish for lies. 
I could dig into that. And then number three is we started to celebrate losses. One time we actually did a champagne toast for a rep that lost a deal because we needed to embrace an environment where losing and losing fast is awesome, not only for the effort, but for the lessons that can be learned. Because if reps are afraid to lose, your forecast suffers right out of the gate, and then you keep losing for the same reason over and over again. Yeah. Those three things, I think, are just like, that's a simple way to get more accurate with forecasting. And I, I could see it in history, but it's even more required now. So at the moment, there's over 9,930 MarTech vendors. <laughs> there's just shy of two, two and a half thousand sales enablement platforms. There are more coaches, trainers, consultants, business advisors than flies. So this is a huge market and no one seems to be fixing the problem. So if we're being brutally honest and you're being a transparent leader, where do you need to start getting your information from? Because clearly it's not bloody working. Can I go on a rant about what you just said? Because yes, I, I love it. It doesn't quite answer your question, but it, it's so funny to me that sales enablement chart, like all of that, it's, that's hilarious that we have, we are now in a period where we are filling every remaining little crevice with technology in the sales world and the marketing world. And if you look through the lens of history, that's bad. And here's why. I would argue, like, they, you know, so many people say we're in a sales technology revolution right now. Okay, cool. I would argue, though, that the biggest sales technology revolution started in March of 1876, when the original AGB, Alexander Graham Bell, made the first telephone call, right? That, you know, we suddenly had this tool that didn't become even a sales tool until 1910, by the way. You do a Google search on it, the data out there is so wrong, it grosses me out. Like I actually sent a complaint to Google. I was like, clear that result because it's wrong. That like the first known B2C cold calling scripts didn't appear until 1910 and I found one. The first known B2B cold calling scripts didn't start until 1914, found one of those too. I've got a whole podcast episode just where I share those, uh, those scripts. But the point being that you know, in the early 1900s. I could just see another rabbit hole. And you'll have to share the link on that one. Thank you. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> it's funny to me that we were given this incredible gift. Early 1900s, sales was trusted, it was respected, it was even admired as a profession to the point where every college worth its salt had sales curriculum. And they were teaching sales in high school in the 1910s. Boston public schools were teaching sales in high school. By the early 1960s, that was all gone, right? The reputation, the admiration, to the point where they, you, you couldn't pay reps, like college kids, enough to get out of school and go into sales. They, it, it was so repulsed. Now, here's what I think happened. I think technology happened. I think that back in the early 1900s, sales required a face-to-face, -face, a human-to-human -human connection and even our president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, during a keynote in July of 1916 at the World Sales Congress, which is the first sales conference of its kind, 3,000 people in Detroit, preaching this idea that salespeople doing right by their customers lifts all boats, meaning we sell the right products to the right people at the right prices, they succeed, they hire, when they hire, the economy grows, and we all within it grow. 
Yeah. Right. That was the way that it worked. It was human to human. It was face to face. Every sale had to be that way. Uh, you could send a catalog, but that's not how sales happen. We then introduced technologies like telephone that cause us to lose our face, right? Great gift. But by the 1960s, we had people like Dr. Shirley Jackson having to create technology to prevent salespeople from selling in the form of caller ID. That type of stuff didn't work. The government had to get involved. And Alexander Graham Bell would be rolling over in his grave right now if he knew that by the end of 2021, there were 221 million phone numbers on the US do not call registry. And like, I don't know about the do not call registries around the world, but salespeople ruined it. We get email. Email, there's another incredible gift, right? I don't, I, I can send something, hit enter, and it shows up in somebody's mailbox instantly. How great is that? Salespeople ruined it to the point yeah. where technologies yeah. had to be created, right? To so it doesn't even get delivered. The technology was created to prevent that because salespeople ruined it. And then the governments had to get involved in that. Like here in the US, we had the Can Spam Act of 2003 because salespeople ruined it. LinkedIn, video, AI, like all of these technologies that are meant to help, we actually made the profession worse and we made things harder. And well, so- and, Well, this, this speaks to something really important, which is a social shift that happened probably sometime around 40 years ago when Milton Friedman and acolytes like Jack Welch took on that idea that everybody serves shareholder value. Because to build on your story about everything moving from being customer-centric to seller-centric, the metrics then moved now to feeding the investor. And so the seller's metrics were about feeding the investor and the customer became a forgotten afterthought at the end of this long chain of abuse. And the money behind an organization will permeate its culture. That will drive the jobs to be done by the leaders and their KPIs that they then feed into their management layer, which then drives exactly how badly the customer is mistreated. And the number of customers you create who become churn or um, you know, flight risks and uh, who churn and you then end up wasting investors' money because you now have to replace these people who would have been perfectly happy staying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it seems so logical, right? If we just take that lens, we, we claim to be buyer-centric, but then all of our systems, our processes, and our measures are completely internal and investor-centric. Okay, so this then speaks to the values of being a transparent leader. Yes. Talk to me about them. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it starts with this idea of the, you know, the first book for anybody that hadn't listened to the podcast. I, you might recall that the basis of it started with this idea that when a website's acting as a salesperson, like when you're buying something online that you haven't bought before, that's of medium to high consideration, you read reviews first. 99% of us do that. But 85% of us go to the negative reviews first. Right, we skip the fives, we go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones. And that a product that has an average review score, and this is across all product categories, some skew higher, some skew lower, so don't freak out. But a product that has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5 is optimal for purchase conversion. Meaning a product that's got negative reviews right under it from people who have bought and used the product actually help it sell versus a solution that's got nothing but perfect reviews. Like that's where this started. 
and then digging into it, the behavioral science of, all right, that's on a website's acting as a salesperson. What happens when a human is acting as a salesperson? Well, buyers act the exact same way. We want it, the negative first because it allows our brain to predict. And presumably we, buyers also buy online. So why, why wouldn't the syntax be the same? Well, exactly. I mean, you think about the way that if you're as a seller are trying to optimize for the buying journey, yeah. knowing how buyers buy when left to their own devices, and you can match that, that's going to optimize everything. I mean, just remember, and maybe this is one of those things that 40 years ago, we went off the rails, but I think the future of sales requires. Uh, I've got another rant about history, if you want it. Go for um, it. Yeah, it, yeah, is, yeah. That's why you're here. Exactly. It is this idea that our job as salespeople is not to convince. Like, you don't buy when you're convinced. If you do, you're probably pissed about it a few weeks later. Yeah. We buy when we can predict, right? When we can go, is the juice going to be worth the squeeze? What's the downside? Cool. What's the upside against that? Is my investment in my time, my resources, and my dollars worth the juice that I'm going to get out of it versus the other ways that I can use that? Like that's what selling is. And once we come at it from that lens, help the buyer predict. Subconsciously, they know that perfection doesn't exist. And as a result, if all you're doing is spewing five-star speak, you're making their decision harder. Now, that, that rant that I promised you 30 seconds ago, <laughs> it speaks to what I believe the future of sales has to be. You know, the, the quote, buyers know more nowadays, right? Like you, you see that, like buyers know more nowadays and like it's a threat to the sales profession. Well, that quote, buyers know more nowadays. It's from Thomas Herbert Russell in his 1912 book, Salesmanship. Uh, you know, 110 years ago, the, the rise of advertising and marketing was a threat to the sales profession. And in his book, he talks about how the future of sales is in peril, 1912. You fast forward, and obviously the profession thrived, like exploded, grew. You fast forward to 2015. So just seven years ago, Forrester, in their annual state of sales report, reported that a million B2B sales jobs would disappear by 2020, and that hundreds of thousands of college-age you know, kids that are graduating would not enter the sales profession because there would be no need for them. Mm -hmm. What happened? The opposite happened. And in that case too, it was the proliferation of information, buyers knowing more, and the rise to e-commerce. What I believe is that we as a profession have not only been resilient, but we have been really, really sharp in the way that we've adjusted. And the ones that survive realize that more information available to buyers hasn't been good for buyers, it's been bad. More information has made it harder on buyers, not easier. Well, the, th this is really interesting because uh, the data shows that more buyers like to buy with a seller-free buying experience. However, they become a flight risk and they churn because they're not as well informed. And so they make worse decisions. Now, well, yeah. well, well this, is this is also really telling. Tony Hughes did a study in Australia of uh, reps selling into pharmacies. And the two top territories, they went to interview the reps. Turns out there were no reps on either territory. So then they interviewed the pharmacist to ask them, well, what value have salespeople brought? None really. Oh, no, they gave us discounts. And so this then is really indicative of where the real problem lies, which isn't that you shouldn't have salespeople, 
But when they're turning up, they're doing all the wrong things because you're yeah. driving them to be seller-centric. Exactly. And again, our job is to help a buyer predict. If you can do the homework for the buyer, bring them both the pros and the cons, what they're going to like, what they're not going to like, what a competitor does better, why this should be a priority, why it shouldn't be a priority, why the price is high. And if that's going to be a problem, let's talk about that right now. Leading with what the customer might be concerned about, like objection handling. I got books on that too, but the best way to handle objections is to know which ones will come out, come up and lead with them and address them up front, help the buyer. Exactly. Oh, exactly. And so like that, I believe, is what creates value for the sales rep is that you're doing the homework for the buyer. Now, remember, a human being's perception of a reward is biased by the journey to get to it. Yeah. Right. This idea that like if I'm going to go with the one analogy I often talk about is my, my wife and kids and I, we were out and the kids wanted ice cream. We said, cool. We got to the, the shop. We had the means. We were there. The line was 14 cars long in the drive. It wasn't us. My wife and I, we were like, ah, we're here. Like the rewards right there. They want it. It wasn't us that decided not to. It was my nine-year-old and my 11-year-old that leaned forward. And they're like, can we just go home? Like, really? What? And like, my son's like, I just want to go play some Minecraft. Like, I, I, I don't want to be here all day. Yeah. Right? That setting proper expectations and consistently meeting it. Because we'll... You know, like Disney, you'll go wait in line for an hour for it's a small world in the summer, right? Because you that's the expectation that part of that transparency is setting the expectation as to what they're going to like, what they're not going to like. When that expectation is consistently meet, that reward remains as sweet. And that's that's part of the way that we need to be thinking about this, because when you lose to the status quo, it's not them, it's probably you and a misset expectation because they have now biased their perception of a reward because all of a sudden they've seen that that line is too long or it's going to be more of a pain in the butt and something else is better and worthwhile like Minecraft. Well, you, you've touched on a couple of really important things here. Um, one is that you've really got to understand your buyer's journey and you need to map where you are in relation to them. Are, you, are they at first thought and you're now trying to sell them on a meeting? or in passive looking, where they're learning how, they're making space. At that point, trying to pitch them for a meeting, it's not going to work. So one of the things that I'm seeing time and time again is this ludicrous emphasis of uh, short-termism in leadership and uh, as a byproduct within the sales team, and this emphasis on the short-term pipeline. If you focus on your medium and long-term pipeline, exclusively or pretty much exclusively in six to nine months you will never ever ever suffer from a short-term pipeline issue and if we're thinking about the old days where you wore out shoe leather you had a patch you met people over time one of my favorite david sandler stories was where he used to carry an index card in his jacket inside pocket and he went to this guy and says yeah um, how many times do you reckon I'm going to have to come and visit you before you buy from me. 10, 20? Oh, probably, I don't know, 10, 20. Yeah, but about 20. So is this the first? And he takes out the index card and puts one and then the date and then puts it back and just chats and then comes back. And the next time he comes, he says, is this number two? 
puts the date and just chats. Anyway, by the fourth, uh, he gets the deal. Because the guy, you know, but it's a, just a beautiful <laughs> story of the human uh, quality. That is because hilarious. you got to know them. Yeah. There was an opportunity to develop an understanding because intimacy is really important. Yes. And that's missing when you're constantly rushing, close them or tell them to sod off and move on. That transactional nature of selling has, uh, is exceptionally damaging. Is there anything written ab uh, about that? When do we first start seeing the byproducts, the unintended, unintended consequences of that occurring in the writing? Um, I mean, in, in terms of like kind of the, the one sale. The sales uh, cycles, customer turning over, disloyalty, expectation to wait till the end of the quarter, all the stuff that's endemic today. You certainly see it rise every time we would have any economic downturns. Right. Like you would see these circumstances. Can I quickly tell a story on that? Because yep. I, I think that it's certainly timely to what's going on today. I, I hinted before we even hit record yeah. here about this one. And I, I think it speaks to what you were just asking about. If you look back 100 years ago uh, at there was something that happened in the early 1920s that I, I like to call the great salesperson purge of the 1920s. Meaning in 1921, salesperson turnover was 77%, and that was involuntary. 1922, salesperson turnover, 85%. Wow. Involuntary. Sales leaders purging their entire sales teams. And so I, I read that and I was like, holy crap, like what happened? When I figured out the lead up to it, I like cried myself to sleep because it looked exactly like the last six, seven years in our economy here. All right. And so let me take you through that. And so back in January, six months ago, I was ringing the bell saying, hey, look, like we step on the same rake over and over again. This happened. It looks exactly like today. We're about to step on that same rake again. And yeah. people are like, nah, there's too much private equity. It's good. What, what's happening? Here's the story. If you look at like 1915 or 1914 through 1918, we, as a world economy, had slow and steady growth. Things were good. They were growing. There were jobs, right? And that's very similar to 2017 to 2020, right? And if you look at private equity investment and all that, slow and steady, it was good. It was strong. 1918, there was an event that hit the U.S. differently than it hit Europe that shut down the economy, and it was World War I. The U.S. entered late. We were not in for long. Oh, there happened to be a pandemic going on called the Spanish flu back then too. Who knew? But 1918, economy shuts down for a period of time. 2020, what happened? March, we hit a pandemic. Economy shut down all around the world for a short period of time. War ends, economies explode, right? They're growing at an incredible rate, like a 4X rate. Sales leaders couldn't hire enough sales reps. The, right? the US economy. Well, the, the U.S. economy in 1919, but even in Europe, as things were starting to come back for a short there, period There's of time. a really important factor. That was the moment that the dollar became the global mm. uh, reserve currency. And that gave uh, the U.S. An, uh, an immense amount of power because now everyone had to buy in dollars. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, look at what's happening now. Yeah, 80 years later. Okay, we're now getting a, a very similar kind of setup where the dollar is 
pretty much owned by the Chinese and the Chinese don't need to start a war. All they need to do is mess with currency. Russia has energy to play with and America has to remember that your empire is coming to an end. So you need to work out how you can navigate that successfully instead of trying to hang on to what you've got because that war you're going to lose. Yeah. Yeah. History is not on your side. Right. Oh, that's a, all right. I'm, that's going to be my homework for this weekend. I got to look into that. But <laughs> if you look at that progression, short-term, huge growth, turnover, salesperson turnover was 60% in 1919 and 1920, but that was voluntary. It was similar to the great resignation that we were just talking yeah. about here, where you had bad reps that were chasing money and turning over really, really quickly. And like it, reps were just leaving. Uh, Match that with 2021, huge yep. growth, turnover of 57%. So almost exact. Then what happened? <laughs> Reversal. End of, end of 1919, early 2020, especially here in the US, huge inflation spike to where US economists were calling 7%. There was a word, it was like cataclysmic, right? Like de devastating. 7% yeah. was devastating inflation. Here in the US, we had eight and a half percent, eight and a quarter percent, eight and a half percent the last three months. Right. So, right, huge inflation spike and then a depression. There was a depression that doesn't get talked about much here in the US because of the Great Depression of 1929 to 1933, but there was a depression and it flipped everything. All of a sudden, nobody was buying, salespeople were being purged everywhere. But that lead up you had mentioned earlier. The lesson that was being taught when I was reading in 1925 about that turnover was, hey, we need to stop as a sales community focusing on revenue at all costs. But like, what? Wait, that was 1920 revenue at all costs, right? Wow. So what you're talking about keeps repeating and then profitability became the gold standard until the roaring 20s. And then all of a sudden another depression, like we keep stepping on the same rake over and over again. But... <sighs> I'm just flabbergasted. I'm confused, though. How is it we can be so myopic? There's a book called The Fourth Turning, which um, you have to read, but I suggest you do it with a stiff whiskey <laughs> because it's mapping out the, um, these cycles, and they take six cycles that have occurred in 80-year cycles you know, repeatedly. And if you're born in a depression or you're born in a high, it affects how you behave uh, in adolescence, adulthood, and elderhood. So what you're seeing now is the Gen Xs are starting to become a movement where we're starting to think that we should be putting back, and we're worried about future generations. Now, we've got um, millennials who are quite, ha in many cases, quite happily going out and doing the bidding of the boomers who still have power and money, but it always, you know, it's the, the next, the grandparents' generation, if you like, that sends this generation off to war, which we've been quite happy to do. Uh, and then you've got the, your, your adolescents that are going through the post-pandemic era. So the ones that remember the pandemic as a child, the earliest memories of the pandemic, they're the beginning of this pandemic generation. Now, what's really interesting is as these cycles um, start to play out, we're at the end of the fourth turning uh, of this cycle and it's upheaval and uh, almost within a two or three year period, 
They were predicting the 2007-8 crash. They were predicting the rise of populism, the rise of some uh, heroic nationalistic leader uh, who would then either take us into war or chaos, civil unrest, then uh, end of empires and rise of other empires. It's just fascinating. And this was all this was all published in 1996. They did a pretty damn good job, but history does repeat, and we need to see these uh, this cycle again. We need to recognize that our superpower is cooperation, and I think that's been forgotten in favor of competition, reluctant coexistence, collaboration at arm's length through a very thick legal contract. Actually, humanity is at its best when we've got a really gnarly problem and lots of our eyes are focused on the problem. We're not all running around trying to come up with a solution. We're trying to understand it first. And I think that's missing. In the literature going back into the 1800s onwards, how did they talk about uh, the meetings with salespeople and the engagement that they had with them? It's amazing how well they did that, actually. I mean, back in the late 1890s, I mean, really, like, there's... One of my books there is, I, I'm reading now, it's the 1926 Sam Crothers um, biography on John Patterson. Uh, John Patterson was the guy that founded NCR, National Cash Register Corporation, right. and became like his theories and his processes really became the foundation for what is modern sales today. Like almost all of it from dedicated territories, like to, to hiring reps in internal versus manufacturers reps or drummers or bagmen that they used to be called and training them and then giving them variable compensation plans and dedicated territories and all that. That was all NCR that started that. And like Burroughs adding machine and some of these other ones came along later. But you know, what's amazing to me is like, even in the 1890s, you know, NCR had thousands of sales reps. They were literally sending them a daily newsletter in the mail daily to thousands every day. There was this uh, this guy, his name escapes me right now. It'll pop back into my head here in a minute. Worlington Holman. Worlington Holman was the author of all of these things. He called them ginger talks. And they were like these things <laughs> that you could, they were amazing. But they were communicating with their reps, with inspirational messages, with lessons learned, with win reports, loss reports. It's ginger talks by Worlington Holman. He published a book of them in 1911 or 1912. That is freaking awesome. It is like, like the ginger talks are so well-written and fantastic. And Worthington Holman was also the, the editor of a magazine from 1904 to 1908 called Salesmanship Magazine, which he did a lot of the writing in, but like the, the stuff that is in there is amazing. But that was the way that they communicated. It was these daily newsletters. It was wires back and forth. It was the mail with deals and but that, that speaks to a very different type of culture because the majority of salespeople nowadays don't see it as the kind of profession where you have to stay up uh, to date. They just go through the grind. Right. And it, it seems to me that education and uh, developing yourself in the profession, what was in, far more important to people then? Keep in mind, though, that sales back then, people, you know, families, they, they didn't have 401ks. They didn't have, you know, any kind of retirement plan. They had to gather as much money as possible in a short period of time. And if you got sick, you're not selling anything. You're not making any money. So like there was like this money grab that was going on, but it didn't make salespeople selfish. It made them learners, right? They wanted to be the best so that they could be as efficient 
and like long-term effective as possible. And at the time, all of this stuff was new, right? Like, it, it, you know, a lot of these writings, like Arthur Sheldon, Arthur Sheldon to me is the goat of sales philosophers. This guy, the way he thought about, it, like, you know, he was the guy that uh, was proclaiming that salesmanship is the science of service. He was the one that was really, really preaching that, but he had created correspondence courses and sold tens of thousands of these. He owned like the North shore of Chicago here. He had a campus like a, and like he had his own uh, post office because he was sending out these correspondence programs, right? He was teaching, but you had new reps to reps that had been selling in the old drummer days that were just bathing in his content and his programs. The, the, the thirst for learning was different back then. And a lot of it had to do with, I need to create wealth that is going to last me through my retirement or through if I get sick because I've got a wife and kids that I got to make sure that I support. So how powerful was reputation within a territory then? Well, it was different in that there was no means to complain, right? If you got sold a bad product or something, what are you going to do? But sales reps owned territories and they were responsible for that. Like NCR, the way that NCR sold, it was almost a pyramid type of thing where they would sell to somebody who was like a thought leader in the community or somebody that looked up to, and then they would incentivize that in, uh, individual for references, right? Like, hey, if you love it, tell five of your friends. And if they buy, we're going to give you some of that back. And so there was an incentive to make sure that the people, like when they're selling top down to the people with the highest clout, they had to make sure that they were creating a great experience for those individuals because that was what fed the inbound model that they were trying to create within those territories. So like that was really, really important. But John Patterson, he had no patience for anything less than perfection. Like the guy was an over-the-top perfectionist. And if, if he found out you were doing anything like that, there wasn't even a like, give me your side of the story type of thing. You were gone. Right. So like, because he knew that that reputation was what was the core, regardless if there was a means to share it or not, that was going to grow and make that company continue to be an ongoing concern. Like, you know, NCR still around today and doing well. So this then raises my final question then, because sadly we've hit the top of the hour, which is uh, around compensation. So many comp plans drive unintended consequences. And are there any really rock solid examples of principles to apply in developing a compensation plan that we can steal from history? Well, the original quota, for example, original quotas via NCR were based on what it took for a salesperson to pay for themselves. Like your quota is you need to be a profitable investment for us as an organization. Yeah. And your quota was not necessarily based on what the territory could do. It was, we're paying you X. And until you make that much money, like that's your quota. And that's when we start getting an ROI on the investment that we're making at you. And if you can't hit your quota, you're gone, right? Because you're a, a asset that loses. Like that was where quotas started. And that became something right. So if that, you got 100K base, then your quota is 100K you got to cover that cost or whatever that, that costs you, maybe 3X. Well, yeah, and, it's that cost plus the investment yeah. in 
you know, in you your as an individual, your training, training expenses, or the, or the opportunity cost of having you versus somebody else. Like they calculate that stuff in there. But like that was the original quotas and it and made then, sense. And then everything over that, you get your share of. Right, exactly. Exactly. Now that makes a lot more sense <laughs> as opposed to my shareholder needs this amount of money to make this valuation. So right. go after that number. Well, yeah, and, and it did change, right? Quotas became a mark of what is the, the territory worth doing and like what, what should we be getting out of it? But that was very mechanical, right? Each territory, they would go through a huge calculation. There was, there was an article I just read and it was from Sales Management Magazine in 1921. And it was in the Q&A section where somebody had written, hey, with the economy tightening, like how should we be impacting quotas? Like by what percentage should they come down based on a tire? And the answer was basically, you're an idiot, right? Like if you're just doing a blanket statement, you're getting quotas wrong. Like you need to analyze within each territory and look at your own numbers and understand like seriously, what should a rep be able to sell based on current economic factors and the history of that territory and what our solutions are worth? And that is your quota. And each quota is different based on the individual territory. Like that's the way they used to do it back then. And reps were incentivized and they were hitting numbers that they should be hitting. And if they sucked, they weren't. If they were great, they were crushing it. But that's like today you've got the percentage of reps that hit quotas so low. And it's because we blanket it across all of them. And it's just like a shot in the dark based on what our company target is instead of the reality of what individual territory should be doing. And that, that's the I'm, difference that I see most stark. I'm, I'm going to have to end on that because otherwise that's three hours of your life you're never getting back. <laughs> um, Todd, one final word of wisdom then. When you first moved into management, what's the first thing you should have asked for help about? Oh, that's a good question. I'll tell you one thing that I remember getting advice from my CEO that he said that Todd, your personality needs to change. You're like, you're, you're their buddy. You're <laughs> nice, right. And I really thought about that thinking he might be right. But then I realized that the, the best thing that I could do is to communicate to my team that, listen, I'm no more important, no better than you. I am a peer to you. I just have different responsibilities. And that's part of being a transparent leader, right? Is to go, this is what I'm responsible for. I'm responsible to help you to grow, to clear the field of the roadblocks that are in your way. I have to forecast. I have to do board meetings. There's certain things that I need from you to be able to do my job. And I'm also going to, in the process, help you do your job and achieve your goals. Once we understood that, that's when things changed. But that first piece of advice around like, hey, you're too nice and you got to hold reps accountable, right? And like, I don't believe that that's leadership. I don't believe we are intrinsically inspired by fear. We're intrinsically inspired by other things. And we well, as leaders have an ability to capture that, grow it and cultivate it within. And, and this, I think is a really important issue uh, that touches on building on your point, which is that if reps don't feel like they're under massive pressure to hit some notional number, and they're coming to work because they genuinely want to serve. They want to help their customers. And they're coming to work because they really enjoy it. The reward is intrinsic. The fact that they hit their quota and it gets recognized financially is a byproduct. It's not the reason for them to come to work. 
And so, again, I think culturally what we've done is we've created this environment where we recruit people who claim to be money orientated, but they're not. The people who are have either come from extreme poverty or they're horrible and they end up in investment banks. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Todd, this has been really fascinating as ever. How can people get hold of you? Yeah, and we could have talked for like, I've got like seven more freaking mind-blowing things we could have talked about. But uh, yeah, I mean- the, But let's book the next one. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, it's Todd Capone, like Google search, right? It's, I'm everywhere annoyingly. But toddcapone.com is a really simple way or follow or connect with me on LinkedIn. I share a bunch of my nonsense there, but like on the website, it's the programs, it's my blog, it's videos, it's the links to the podcast. Like you can What's get What's the podcast? There. The podcast is called the Sales History Podcast. And again, it's just a 15 to 20 minute monologue of me nerding out on some sales history topic. And uh, I used to do it regularly. Now I kind of do it when the, the moment inspires me. But yeah, check it out. I think you'll find some fun stuff in there. Excellent. Todd Capone, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off again from the Inquisitor Podcast. I hope you found this enjoyable. I, I certainly have. And there's some fantastic reads. Actually, Todd, how does one get hold of your library? Because I don't imagine many of these things are still in print. Man, they're not. It, it's, uh, I wish there was an easy way to share it. I go to like abebooks.com, eBay, and just find this stuff and buy it. And I've got magazines from the 1960s I just managed to acquire like a whole stack from some like grandpa's old basement. So I, I wish there was an easier way for me to share it. But uh <laughs> my wife asked, are you married? <laughs> I am. Yes, yes. <laughs> so this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again for the Coaster Podcast. If you want to get hold of me, Marcus at last-last.com. And if you're running a fast growth tech company and you're trying to scale up, but you know that as we go into recession, you're going to have to think differently. You're going to have to behave differently and you're going to have to innovate your way out. Then drop me a line. I've put together a fantastically talented team. We've got solutions that can solve some of the gnarliest problems that you've probably been wrestling with for 10, 20 years. So get in touch. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.